Good afternoon. You know what time it is. It's count time. And I'm L.D. Azorba. And I'm about to interview a legend here in the Louisiana area. L.D., better known as Mr. White. How you doing, sir? I'm doing fine. How you I'm doing? I'm trying to help him along, y'all. Yeah, I'm Silky Slim, man. And of course, you know, man, I'm over there having fun with my good friend, Lyman, and L.D. Azora, man. Um, we've been friends for a long time. And I was very honored when he asked me to be on Count Time because I've been paying attention to Count Time um, for some time now. And the thing that I like about it is that Count Time actually gives you knowledge that you can take into the future about some of the things that's happened to us as people in America from the past. And what's interesting about this podcast is that he had an idea to do what he was calling the show at the time before podcast became popular. And I was the one that was actually filming him at the time. And he would get in front of the camera and say, (laughs) he would get there in front of the camera and he would say, hey, I'm who I am, Silk. (laughs) So, hey, if you don't know who you are, man, we in trouble. But, hey, friendship, years and years of friendship, um, ever since he had his restaurant where I grew up at in the bottom, and I think that's where we'll start at, at the bottom line. It's 4 p.m., stand up, it's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I am Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Well, today we have a, what we say, true Louisiana legend, all the way from the dirty south, the bottom, we have what we call the, the ghetto messiah. Yeah, ghetto messiah, yes. <laughs> we got the one and only, a friend, a brother, confidant, someone I got to know quite some time ago. We have the legendary, uh, I, I don't like to say gang, gangster turned activist. I mean, that's what they call him, but I just think he's a, a brother that was lost for a while who came, found his way. Uh, he was in the wilderness for quite some time, but now he's here to make a difference and making a difference. I have my dear friend here. I have the one and only author, Silky Slim Reed. I'm glad you Welcome cleared. to Count Time. Man, I'm glad you cleared that up. Um, I hate when people say former gangster, uh, you know, um, because one of the things that I experienced in life um, is that for us as black folks, there are no true gangsters. There are many fools, but there are no true gangsters, you know. And I learned that from um, walking into the penal institution and seeing the way that they handle us inside of these institutions. So um, gangsters go out feet first. Gangsters go out with the sheets. And we take just about anything, any type of treatment in America, period, so we're not true gangsters, but we act a role and we act like fools is what we really act like when we try to act like gangsters, but we act a role very well. We just act it. We act We're just actors, that's yeah. right. We just act We ain't fooling nobody but ourselves. No, no. Because the folks who the folks who run it they know who the real is. Yeah, of course. If they thought you were gangsters, they wouldn't be putting you through the pain and tyranny that they're putting you through. So I always like to clear that up because once I realized, uh, I found myself in a situation one day where I was actually fighting and I observed the situation and I heard um, something that keys and handcuffs coming down the wall. And I found myself sitting on the bed 
And the man opened up the door and said, who's who, who we fighting? And nobody said nothing. He said, read your fighting. And when he went out that door and he locked it, I say, damn. I say, that was the man. Who the hell am I? I was the slave. Ooh. And Took I was. The sound of the shit, the keys. Conditioned to know that those handcuffs and keys meant what? And master might come what? Whoop my ass. So once I realized that, I was like, hey, man, something is wrong with us. Something is wrong with us mentally, and something is wrong with us anytime we can see each other and hate each other the way that we do. And the real enemy walks by and smiles, and you scratch when you ain't even itching. So um, something is wrong with us, man. And, and we, mentally, we have to deal with that before we can deal with anything else. I tell people, that and we jumping a little bit here because I always like to try to put this message out first. Let's, let's do what you gotta when do. when we talk about justice for black folks, right? And we create a chat that black lives matter. If it don't matter to the black man first, it shouldn't matter to anybody else. If it don't matter to you and I, where we can see each other and respect each other, if we're shooting each other down in the streets, then it should be nothing for a white man to come put his knee on my neck for nine minutes and 56 seconds. Mm -hmm. Because we don't care about each other. If I was to walk on your feet right now, your feet ain't gonna say, ouch, man, that hurt. Your mouth will, why? It's connected to a nervous system. And once it's connected to that nervous system, when I hit you anywhere on that nervous system, you feel that pain. That's what has happened to us as a people. We've been disconnected from our nervous system as a people. So I can see somebody blow you brains out and say, oh, man, you see what they did? Him? Blow his brains out. It don't mean nothing to me because we don't look at each other as people. So we have to start back seeing each other as people. Now, let's go back. We're going to regress a little bit. Because you, 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 you was one at a young age was traumatized. So we're talking about trauma. Yeah. Childhood trauma, slavery trauma, where we was taken away from our ancestors, our land, our people, and brought to a place. How, 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 how what the minister say? We was hit in the head. Yeah, left for dead in a shadow grave. In a shadow grave. But even with what happened to us in the Middle Passage, what we've gone through here is far more worse. Um, in my new film, there's the opening scene where you see a five-year-old kid watching a man take a gun from his pants and put it up to his mama's head and drag her down to the ground and stick that pistol to her head. And you hear her, baby, baby, get the gun, get the gun, baby, don't let him kill your mama. And she's biting them on the, on the chest, and the baby's wrestling for the gun. And the gun breaks her loose from his hand, and the baby ends up with the gun and takes off running towards his grandmother's house. But before he could get to the grandmother's house, the person that was about to assault his mother said he's going to hurt himself. And the mama, come back, baby, come back. And the baby keeps running. And then the man gets up and runs the baby down and brings him back, and he's pulled this pants down and popping them on the bare behind. And the only thing that the baby really wanted was for mama to stop him from hitting him because he was trying to save his mama. Remember that. But as soon as he stopped hitting him, then mama started beating his ass. You come back when I tell you to come back. 
child is confused. That messed me up for a long time in life. Because here I am drawn into a situation and I'm trying to help my mama and then she turns around and beat me because I didn't come back because I was afraid. I was running with the gun. So that was the first start of bringing out the darker side of me at an early age. So it was so much trauma that I suffered here before I even learned about the middle passage and the suffering that my people had went through. So it was uh, it's I mean, just and, crazy. And at a young age, both of your parents was locked up. Yeah, at, at a very young age. At a very young age, you're talking three, four years old, you know. Nobody's in the house, so I'm with Grandma and um, with Aunt Maggie, and things are different. So, you know, that's that's kicks in with the hustling and you don't have enough to eat, you know what I'm saying, and hunger pains. So um, I tell people all the time that I will beg before I steal, but I steal before I starve. So I started breaking the washing machines, telephone machines, newspaper machines. And a lot of people used to say, oh, man, I wouldn't waste my time. She, man, one washing machine holds $250 <laughs> worth of quarters. As, so, as a young child, yeah, that's so, a lot of money. Yeah. So, but you think about it, we going in high-perk apartments, mm -hmm. and we getting three washing machines over there, and then we go to LSU, to the dormitory, we get three of them. That's six, so that's six <laughs> times 200. So we, we got $1,000 worth of quarters behind the house. Y'all rich. Yeah, we rich. Matter of fact, that's how you met your good friend, uh, Coach Dale Brown. Dale Brown, that's right. Tell us that story. Well, we was breaking into a washing machine at Hatchet Hall. You remember the hall, huh? Yeah, Hatchet Hall. <laughs> And um, white man popped his head in. Hey, what are you guys doing? We had the crowbar. We let the crowbar hit the ground. Clang, clang, clang. He was like, what was that? We were like, I don't know what that was. What was that? <laughs> so he was like, hey, man, look, where are you from? We like, we from over there. Over where? Over there. Because <laughs> we know, you know, back then, it was a divide between the bottom and LSU. Although LSU was in the bottom. That's right. Back then, when you come down Roosevelt Street, you seen the fence with heavy barbed wire. And we used to have to take um, wire cutters and cut holes in the fence to get through that. We couldn't climb over the barbed wire, so we cut holes in there, raise the fence up and slide up under it. And um, he said, hey, man, y'all can't just be around here because people been stealing bicycles, breaking in the washing machines and stuff. And if the police see you, they'll get you. We were like, oh, okay, thank you. He's like, well, I'm Dale Brown, man. If y'all ever want to come to a basketball game, um, feel free to look me up. We were like, all right. We got out of there, wiped our foreheads. Shoot, crazy white man, let us go. <laughs> Took our running down the Indian miles and well, we just thought that was a fun time. <laughs> yeah, man, but it, 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 years later you learned that you hadn't made a fool out of Dale, that Dale was just that type of person that he wanted to see black folks do okay, you know, and, um, so we became very good friends, and he's been uh, a pillar in my life for a moment. And um, if I pick up the phone and call him, we always have a good chat. So yes, that's how I met Dale. Because I know you, let's talk about something. How good of a man, you know, not to uh, you know, bloat the Dale Brown, but we know the heart of, the Dale, of, of, of that man, Dale Brown. We know who he is, we know what he stands for. You called me one day, you said, man, you never guess, man. Coach told me to go pick out me what? Oh, a suit. 
Yeah, a tailor-made suit. Tailor-made suit. Yeah, a tailor-made suit. And at that time, you, uh, didn't, have, you didn't have too many suits at all at that time. Yeah, yeah, at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, what Dale Brown did and what he do is he tries to look for individuals that he feel are going some places. Because when he first called, he was like, hey, man, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get us a tailor-made suit. I said, oh, man, that's cool. And then he called me back about two days later. He said, you know what, Silky? Um, you're going bigger places than I am. I've been everywhere I'm going. He's like, I think I'll just send you to get a suit. So he sent me to get a suit, you know. And interesting that you said that. And, and like you say, um, it's a thing about him because he invited me to a dinner one day. And um, I sat down and ate dinner with him and his grandson. And um, after we ate, we had conversations, and it came to a point where he asked his grandson, I said, oh, Timmy Career, what do you think about Silky? He said, oh, Popo, I think he's very um, intelligent. He's very intelligent. Um, but I was afraid of him at first. He said, why? He said, because of those gold teeth. I always connect that with bad people. And I had gold teeth there. And they'll say, oh, wow. I said, hey, man, I said, well, if I ever get that money like your Paul Paul got, I say, I'm going to get these gold teeth taken out. I say, I only got them because I've been shot before and my teeth was broken and this was the least expensive way of fixing my teeth. You're like, oh, okay, I understand. So two or three days went by and the secretary called Linda and uh, I answered the phone and Linda said, hey, Silky, how are you? I say, I'm fine, Linda. She said, you have a pen? I say, yeah. She said, write this number down. I wrote the number down. And she says, that's um, Dr. Such and Such. I say, okay, what's this for? Say, if you want to get those gold teeth took out and get your mouth um, fixed, everything is already paid for. So it was like this huge amount of money that he paid to um, extract those gold teeth and have me with what they call the Hollywood smile. So I'm always thankful for him. And of course, you know, Dr. Appleton, who was the doctor, he told Dale, well, if you just pay for the material, I'll do the manual work for free. So it was a win-win situation. And of course, um, the way that I actually tried to compensate what the doctor had done, once people see my mouth, street guys, they wanted to go get their teeth done as well. So it kind of like took care of a lot. It like, you know, helped other people get gold teeth out. It helped the doctor to make a so, decent So place. this one man, and who's a white man, what we call a white man, mm -hmm. found something, saw something in you that he invested in you. Yeah. He, without, yeah. Your, without you asking, without you- Without me even realizing what he was actually doing. doing. Yeah, yeah, without without me realizing what he was actually doing is that he invested and um, it took some time for me to actually realize the type of investment that he had made, you know. And it's kind of hard sometimes because when I get ready to be hard on the white man sometimes, <laughs> the white man put his teeth in. <laughs>
That's a joke, y'all. That's a joke. You know I'm going to say what I got to say. And that's one thing that Daryl loves about what I do is that he... You like, he goes, he's like, yeah. He's like yeah, yeah, exactly. He said, like, boy, you know me and you are just alike. You tell it how it is. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a joke. Yeah. Uh, no, Coach. Coach, I think you knew what you was doing, Coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you use reverse yeah. psychology. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. No, no, where did you get those suits from? Um, oh, Brown and Brown, um, good friend. Um, I became friends with him after uh, Coach sent me over there. Like, I would go over there. You remember, man, I, I went over there, and I called you. I thought I had found something. I said, hey, man, you know Eugene Brown? I said, man, I went over there, man, got so much knowledge, blah, blah. He's like, man, Gene been down there on Riverside Mouth forever. <laughs> So, you did. so, yeah, man, but I became very, very good friends with Eugene Brown, man, hanging out with him um, over at his shop. and um, That run by his, his son, Eugene yeah, Jr. Jr. now, yeah. So we're we, we going to give him a little, a little play today. And I tell, I tell, I tell, I tell um, you know, the younger son we call Gino, I tell Gino all the time, hey, man, I miss coming by the shop just to see your dad take a nap because you be talking to Gene. <laughs> You talk to Jim for about five minutes, Jim be like this. Oh, <laughs> and then he'll man. wake back up, he'll wake back up about five minutes later, get right back in the conversation, no, 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 man. Didn't miss a beat, huh? Didn't miss a beat, man. Yeah, like I was saying, Silky, but I... Yeah, well, well, you know, our dear friend, Gene Sr., passed on several years ago, but he got his son... Uh, Eugene Jr. running the Browns and Browns off Government Street. Go yeah. over there and support them. They're good people. But uh, but thanks for to Coach Dale Brown. I just kind of had to you know share that because that in some way was a turning point as you was maneuvering and figuring out you know how you was going to do this. What you what you call this newfound silk? How you want to make a difference in your community? How you want to uplift it? Because you knew these young men, they're just looking for opportunities. They, yeah. They, um, they, they wanted something. They wanted. They wanted. I, at one time, me and you ran into Ed McHugh. Tom Ed McHugh. Yes. The mayor. The mayor. The former mayor of Yeah. And this was in the 80s when gang banging was really popular in Baton Rouge, just getting here. And I was in the parish. And they brought me down to the mayor's office. And they wanted to try to figure out, how, what can we do? What can we do for stop this, this stuff was going on? I said, well, I tell you what. I say, if you give us a job for every gun that we turn in, I say, that'll help stop it. Hey, <laughs> you remember what Ed McHugh said? Um, but what they did was like, this can't be as easy as he think. So what they did was they extracted the idea and tried it themselves, and it didn't work because they wasn't connected to the streets. You know, the first she, thing... She's going to trust them? Yeah, the first thing the brothers <laughs> in the streets say, man, the white folks must think I'm crazy. <laughs> Turning in a gun for a job and being my job would be in Angola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So they it didn't work for them. But I was confident that that would have worked because I knew the people, and then we were talking. and, and it, It's a funny thing. For years, and for mayors and mayors, brothers would say, if you give me a job, then I will stop doing what I'm doing. And then they would, how much do you want to make? 
You remember when people used to say ten dollars an hour, and that was really saying something? They thought that was real. Yeah, if I, man, if I get ten dollars an hour, bro, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. And then, then, and then they would say, "Oh well, they're not qualified for a job that pays that much." And my thing has always been is that even if they're not qualified, if you're serious about fighting crime, give it to them. And if it works, then continue to do it. And the thing I hate about Baton Rouge is that we go everywhere else and look for things to come back and try at home instead of looking for what you already have in your front yard. So we'll walk over diamonds, gems, and all kind of valuable jewels and come back with a damn rock. Look at this rock I found. This rock was up there in New Jersey and this rock was in Mexico. This is a good rock. I heard it's working. What works in other places may not work here because you're dealing with a different mentality. So they will overlook gems in their own front yard and come back with a damn rock from somewhere else like they done something. And, and it don't work. And promote it to the and, end. And, and promote it to the so end. So the question becomes this, you and I, we, we know what count time is, right? Yes. We know what count time is. Is the system overall truly committed to making a difference in the community that we live in. Oh, no, it's not. Uh, I learned that the hard way. As you know, with Stop the Killing, we created workbooks and we created programs for Stop, schools. Mother Cry was the biggest thing around here. We created, no we created the real things that made change inside of the system. And it became so popular at the time until they called me into a meeting over at LSU and they set me down with the Dean of Students and they say, well, the reason why this can't do what you really wanted to do is because you don't have a recognizable name. So they wanted me to let him put his name on my book and we move forward from there. They say, if you would just let him, Dr. Christian Molador, I'll never forget. <laughs> <laughs> and it was she too, right? <laughs> yeah. Say, so if you let him put his name on the book, then we could get behind it and help you to elevate it. I was like, well, he ain't wrote the book. I know he got a doctor degree. And my whole thing has been, even when you go to these higher places of education, if you go find the best criminologist that they have at LSU, he ain't got a damn thing on me because I was the criminal. And if I study myself and find out what made me commit such acts, then I deserve a degree. I know why I did some of the things that I've done. Now, he could sit down with me and have an interview with me and give a good synopsis as to why he feel like I acted that way. Well, I think that Silky acted that way from seeing so much trauma in his life growing up in South Bay. That's cookie cutter BS. The person that have to sit back and look at what has been injected into him and pull that out of him to make himself a better person is the person that could really help and change a lot of things that we see in this world. But because we reject individuals who's made mistakes, we reject them, then we have a world that's steady growing. And now the problems that were once the ills of South Baton Rouge or North Baton Rouge are the ills of all of Baton Rouge now because it's spilled over into their community too.
the drug situation is is just out of control. I just, I mean, you got so many of white children are dying over the overdoses that it's become a concern. Now. <clears throat> but it's affecting everybody. One day I was in South Baton Rouge hollering at you. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting, I'm sitting in my truck and we stand up there talking. And these two, I'm looking up, we're looking up the street, looking at this young white boy and young white girl mm-hmm. walking towards us. Mm-hmm. And first of all, at that time, several years, a few years ago, no white people hung in South Baton Rouge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Period. You know, that was, that's just, mm-hmm. you don't see that. They walking down the street, and I'm saying, some people you know still because they was coming towards yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. said, ah, I don't know. So the closer they got, they walked up to us. You remember what they asked us? Mm-hmm. What they asked us? Where that fire at? Uh-uh. He said, where that killer? Yeah, yeah. Where, where that killer shit? Yeah, 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 <laughs> I yeah, said, yeah. I said, Sip, what are you talking about? Yeah. He said, yeah. man, that's that. You remember, remember a couple a couple of days? Last week, man, them two guys uh, died OD'd overdue. on Highland Road. That's right, next to the dollar store they family dollar. yeah that next to the family dollar they died in the apartment and that's the thing about but that has always been very popular in the heron culture opiate culture period um if it was something that was killing people instead of running from it they run to it and everybody got their own idea they just ain't put enough water on it <laughs> they ain't know what they was doing that's fine because they realize it's more raw and it's more uncut. And they want, for they want, people, yeah, they want that. I two mean, people they, just they died. want they hide the last a long time. And, they, and that is a young boy, and a young young white boy, and a young white girl. And yes. they ask for that. What? Yeah, where well, they kill that? Yeah, I mean that's their thing. But the coke, I mean the um, the opioid epidemic that we're seeing now is concerning because it's all over the place. So you got the pills, you got fentanyl, you got all of these things all over the place and they're killing people on a constant level and it's affecting white people. Now what I don't like and what I just seen, people will make a narrative about any damn thing. So we had an influx of um, when this young man, I can't think of his name, he got killed, well he OD'd they wrapped him up in a rug, rode around with him in the, the back. Downtown, yeah. The, yeah. The, guy, the guy came from, yeah, from an, um, Tennessee, Kentucky. So yeah, like, yeah. So they rode around with him from, and then we father, had. Father of, the funeral home. Yeah, we had funeral. officials. We had officials in Baton Rouge that were ignorant enough, is what I will say, to make a statement that he had got blue magic. Oh, he got a hold of Blue Magic. Blue Magic is a deadly form of heroin in 1970. In 1970, not in 2023. Blue Magic is not a DNA type of heroin, or it's not a D. It's not a um, Pacific kind of heroin. Blue Magic was a name that Frank Lucas gave his heroin because that was his product. So in 1990s, they had 911. So they was giving them 911. And then they had Worldwide. And so everybody that. They named their product. They named their product. So they went and said, oh, it was Blue Magic. From looking at a damn movie, it was no damn Blue Magic. It was Heron. 
Now, what the name of it was, I don't know, but they named it Blue Magic because they want to always make connections, and it's just it's just crazy. But Blue Magic was in the 70s, 911. If you listen to that BG and Juvenile, I'll be full of that 911, full of that Worldwide. It was just different names of heroin that people give their name. So if, if I had something, I might um, say, this mousetrap, you know what I'm saying? Or this is... Um, this that killer raw. It's just different names. Every heroin, and the reason why that they name it because um, in big cities, not here, in big cities, heroin will come in a plastic, not plastic, wax, in a wax bag, like a little, you know, what wax paper is. Right. There's a little wax paper envelope that it comes in, and they take these stamps and they have on the stamps nine one one, and they stamp it on there and they have a telephone on it. And then they had worldwide, and then it'd be a, a picture of a world, and it have like an arrow so, going so, around so it. So this is how they package their product. That's how they package their product, and and they put their brand on it. Right. Yeah, so and that brand so, so you go looking that, for yeah, yeah, that brand does not stay around forever. Nine one one may have lasted six months, and then it was worldwide that came out because what happens is if nine one one is the fire, and then world world worldwide comes out and it's more strong than nine one one. I don't want no nine one one. I want worldwide. So even if I'm on the south side and they got worldwide on the north side, I might make something and start stamping mine worldwide because I wanted to sell. Right. Yeah, but I was I was really I was really um, disappointed that they made such a statement because you can't you can't connect the dots on that. You can't connect the dots on but, that. But now the biggest thing is no matter what type of drug you got, they're lacing it with fentanyl. Fentanyl, yes, yes. So that's the that's the biggest. Well, issue. fentanyl is taking over. Yeah. And fentanyl, so anybody marijuana, pressed pills, heroin, they're putting it in. Fentanyl is a potent level of an opioid, right? And I think that's the whole thing. I, I, I never cared. I had drugs of choice, of course, when I was in the streets. But I never cared for heroin because I spent $50 for something when I put it in my arm and make me sleep. But then while I'm asleep, I'm steady fighting to stay woke. I'm like, that's crazy to me. <laughs> if I want to go to sleep, go ahead and go to sleep. But while I'm in there, I'm trying to stay woke at the same time. Like, nah, I'd rather whatever. I ain't going to try to pay the best money for something that's going to so, so make that, me sleep. That, that helped you then? Uh? Yeah, definitely. I, I was just like, nah, I don't like the hell run matter, thing. Matter of fact, you, you named your, uh, your, your, uh, your label uh, formaldehyde. 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 Yeah, formaldehyde. You, why formaldehyde? Well, it's a 33-year addiction. No, formaldehyde, formaldehyde is what they use for what? Dead people. Embalming yeah, dead, dead people. people. Yeah, to preserve but I, the body. I had, a, I had a 33-year addiction. So 33 years? Yeah, 33-year addiction. And it's still tatted on me. And somebody, somebody once told me, um, one of my friends said, man, you went tatted that on you, man. Suppose um, it don't blow up. Suppose it don't do this. Suppose It's mine's. I own formaldehyde records, so it ain't like I had a cash money tattoo on me and somebody else owned it, I just was a part of it. This was mine. So I could tote this with me for life and still be uh, satisfied that I put this on because it was mine. So a 33-year addiction of formaldehyde, which is PCP, angel dust, um, and 
33 years. 33 years. Yeah, 33 years. And um, in, my, in, the, in the film, we talk about that. We're walking home, um, 12 years old, we're walking home through a parkway, and we find a coffee bag full of PCP. But you didn't know what it was at the time? No. I smelled it, and it smelled like mint. I'm like, damn, what is this? I'm smelling it. And then one of the guys that was with me, he said, man, I think that's angel dust. I say, what? I say, angel dust. So the first day we went to Stevenson's store, got a pack of rolling papers and rolled just a little bit of it and smoked it, and we got to fighting each other. It's like, damn. <laughs> 12 years old. Yeah. And man, my mama came home, and there was holes in the sheetrock where we had been in the house fighting. And and then I just started smoking it until I was addicted to it. And what happens with uh, PCP is that when you when I smoked it, it leaves like an empty hole in my stomach. And the only way, and that would ache and ache and ache. But as soon as I put that smoke in there, it would go away. And it would make me aggravated, frustrated, mean. It made me an animal. And um, 33 years I spent doing it. And I had a very expensive habit. And I think the worst thing that could have happened is that I started dealing it. So, you know, the old saying, don't get high with your, off your own supply. So I had so much to, I was smoking it sometimes. A couple of times I ended up on the fifth floor at Baton Rouge General. That's the crazy war. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what, what, why would it bring you to Baton Rouge General? Hallucinating. It was one time I'll never forget. I smoked so much, I went back to a house where I was growing up at when I was a kid and kicked the door in. And knew other people were staying there, of course. And um, they ran out the house and they called the police and I'm in the house telling the house, Mom, I'm home! Mom, I'm home! And um, the police car pulled up. And when the police car pulled up, I ran out the back door and came around the side of the house and ran and got in the back of the police car and slammed the door and say, pull out, Mama, the bastard's trying to get me. <laughs> An old white police officer, probably about, he was real old, he put the car in reverse and drove back down to where my mama was standing outside and said, Miss Reed, I think he's gone this time. He called me mama. <laughs> I think he's gone this time. So they took me to Baton Rouge General, and, and I stayed in Baton Rouge General probably about a week until I came down, you know. And um, now, now, you told me you was at a hotel one time and, and almost wanted to, about to jump through a window. No, I jumped through a window. You jumped through the window? Yeah. Um, I jumped through the window, and you see my arm was right no, no, here. Now, now, tell us, just t t start from the beginning with that story, then. I had been smoking, and at the time, the same thing, angel. Yeah, angel dust. Yeah, and at the time, you know, I was, I was so dark. Um, I had the money, cars, all that stuff, but I was dark. I mean, my life was miserable. I just wanted to end it. I got high, ran, jumped out the window. My feet got caught in the window still. I'm hanging over the side. Help, help, help. And the guy, you know, the little Indian people that have the little stars, a little diamond thing in their head, they owned the hotel. It was on the Hollywood Strip. 
and they came and pulled me in, and he was looking at the rug and looking at the table. What happened? And he scared he finna get sued. He was like, man, what you trip on the on the rug? You How did you fall out the window? I said, no, 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 man, I'm high as hell. I said, man, I tried to kill myself. He said, you tried to kill yourself? Why you didn't just go ahead and die? <laughs> what you hollering for help for? And that kind of like woke me up. I was no. like, damn, he's right. You know, and you know, uh, I went in, I got help, but I was addicted. I couldn't, I couldn't just jump off of it because I would do things and, and the next day I'd be right back getting high again. You know, I took it all as a laughing joke. And me and Bushwick Bill, may he rest in peace, we stayed high off of PCP. And um, that, it was just terrible. That's the same one that uh, y'all was driving back? Yeah, California? yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, t- tell about how cold a drug business have you, how, like you said, in the dark, in, in the dark. We definitely have you in the dark. Um, that's 2001, you talk about the wreck, right? Yeah. Well, in 2001, you know, we made a drug run, started here, and yeah, started in Baton Rouge. People from New Orleans came, picked me up. We go and get it. So we got on the interstate, headed to Los Angeles, and we got to El Paso, Texas. And I said, "Man, I'm hungry. Let's get something to eat." We got off the bridge. We stopped, and when we got to the stop sign, just like I'm talking to you. I could hear a voice in my head say, look at that side. I say, damn, where that came from? <laughs> so I looked out the window, and there was a billboard out there, and then it had a crushed up car on the billboard. At the bottom it say, everyone wore a seatbelt, everyone lived. And they was actually advertising the jaws of life that the fire department would use to save people's lives. Oh boy, that put so much fear in me until I had never wore a seatbelt in my life, I put my seatbelt on. My friends that was with me, oh boy, look at you, you're getting scared, scared to die, scared to die, scared to die. I said, nah, something told me to look at that sign. I said, I don't know what it was. So we went to LA, we parted, got the drugs, shipped the drugs back. January the 11th, I'll never forget. You remember the date? January 11th at 11 o'clock, I'll never forget. <laughs> so we on our way back, we're in a place called Curlville, Texas. And I took the seatbelt off and laid it back and covered up with a blanket. Never forget, we was listening to Tupac Secure. And he was saying, expect me back like Jesus Christ. Expect me, expect me. I was like, damn. And that voice came back in my head. It said, put the seatbelt back on, look outside. And I raised up, looked outside, it was drizzling. I put the seatbelt back on, I looked over, we were doing 77 miles an hour. I say, man, Al, slow down, man. It's raining out there. He said, man, I ain't thinking about you with that scary ass. He's just cursing, you know? And he said, I got to get back and pay my MF in taxes. And instantly, an 18 wheeler switched lanes and knocked us over the side of the mountain. Over the side? Yeah. And when that truck got to flipping and turning, I'm looking at him, his eyes was big like an owl. The top of the truck pierced him in the top of the head like it bent and pierced him and punctured the top of his head. And they wasn't wearing seatbelts and they was flying around in there like rag dolls. And when that truck came to a stop, I didn't have a scratch on me. They was in there, uh, 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 they was transitioning. And I climbed out of the truck and as soon as my feet hit the ground and I looked at the truck, that same voice said, now I brought you out of that, what are you gonna do for me? 
And I was like, wow. Now, I understood that that was God speaking to me. I understood you, that. You, you knew that. No doubt in my mind I know that was God. But the evil side kicked in, too. <laughs> What's that evil side? What that devil did? $10,000 in his pocket in there. <laughs> Climb back in there around all that blood. Got the money, you know. And, and, and then I started thinking more about, oh, I ain't got to give nobody nothing. It's all mines now, you know. That's so, how the mind, that's what the mind, the mind was at. I you got two, you got friends. Dead, but I, I ain't got to give nobody nothing. It's all about you now. Yeah, it's mines now. So... I went to the funerals and stuff, you know, and things happened. And I was out fishing. I went in the backyard. I was fishing. I caught a little baby perch. And I took him off the hook and threw him back in the water. He was flapping on top of the water. And I got real sad. I started crying. Started praying. I said, Lord, please don't let this fish die. I'm like, uh, I just want to. You have passion, compassion for a fish? <laughs> you messing up the stern. All right. I say, Lord, please don't let this fish die. I don't want to see nothing else die. Please, Lord, please. And that voice said, watch the glory of the Lord. So I stood up to see if the fish was going to swim down in the water. And it didn't. I got angry, broke my pole. I say, damn, I thought I heard the Lord talking again. Out of nowhere, a white bird came and he swooped the fish up out the water. Bloosh. I say, I got it. I say, the dying fish fed the hungry bird so it didn't go to waste. I say, that's a good one. And that voice say, how can you have so much compassion on my smallest creature, yet go out to kill my greatest, which is man, every day? I put my gun down that day, and I never picked it back up. That's, that's when you came to that place? That's when I came to that place. I never picked it back up because it made so much sense to me. And, you know, I tell people, there's a guy, I won't call his name. When I see him, I always hug him and kiss him and squeeze him. He don't know why. Because he was an enemy to my friend. And it was like late at night, like 4 o'clock in the morning, by the after hours. Full of that Hennessy, full of that PCP. We seen him. My boy said, we got him. Got the MAC-10 out, got the Tech 9 out. We went back. He was on the payphone. And he let the window down. He let the window down, and I was looking. When he let the window down, he was on the payphone, and I was getting ready to cut loose on him. And I couldn't cut loose on him. And when he turned around off the payphone and looked at the car, he had my face on his body. I say, damn. My boy said, man, you got him, man. You got him, man. And he took off running. And that's the way you see the To Live and Die in America cover. A picture of me killing myself. And that message from God then was like, every time you shoot or harm one of your own people, you're doing it to yourself. That's a powerful message. Yeah, I couldn't kill myself. No. That, that means you got a problem. That's right. You, 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 nobody can help if you kill yourself. When he turned around and he had my face on his body, it messed me that up. That was that real to you? Yes. It messed me up. Now, the thing that I, I look at is that we could go over a thousand stories and I could tell you about all the things that God has done in my life to get me to the point that I am, right? 
And as soon as I walk off of some people, you know what they say? Yeah, that boy had a breakdown. Because <laughs> God didn't do it for them. Right? He did it for me. Why he did it for me? I don't know. I'm so undeserving. I'm so undeserving. I tell people, um, I'm doing much better than I deserve to be doing, right? I know all the dirt that I've done. I know all the things that I've done. But for some reason, God has saved me in an astronomical way and has put so much in me until I'm indebted. Now, I tell people this as well. When I see a lost soul, a drug addict, a prostitute, I see a lost soul, I envy them. That's an interesting comment. Yeah, because, because I was once in that place. I was in that place what I didn't know, where I had the blinders on. But now I say I see, and I still find myself at, with wicked ways that bothers and troubles me. That bothers me. Be like, they got it better than me, because I know they don't know, because I can remember when I didn't know. And when I look at all the things, I say, wow, how was I that dirty? Now I question humbly, oh Lord, why did I have to go through so much and see so much? And that answer was, if you hadn't went and seen all that you have, I wouldn't be able to use you the way that I'm using you now. So, but I envy those that don't know because I could say I know and may find myself in a position where I see a devil with a dress on and say, boy, the Lord gonna have to forgive me. (laughs) And seriously though, sometimes God will, God has a sense of humor, right? Because the other day, that's what I was saying. I, I wasn't going to try to rap. I was just going to look. I said, boy, the Lord's going to have to forgive me, boy, because I'm going to look. Got out the car, ran inside a Dollar Tree, and went <laughs> look for that pink dress. I went look for that pink dress that I seen. And I looking down every aisle. And then there was the pink dress in the line. So I went and stood right behind the pink dress. I said, boy, this thing fine. <laughs> And the guy turned around and said, hey, Super Slim, how you doing? <laughs> I said, you know. I said, you got me that time, bro. I said, you got me that time, bro. Stop picking that up. That was the truth, man. The truth is the truth, bro. I said, boy, Lord, you got me that time. But, that's, that's a sense of humor. Yeah, a sense of humor, man. But that's what I wrestle with, trying to get where I want to be. And I think as long as you have the self-accusing spirit letting you know that you're not where you want to be, you can get where you want to be. You just have to give it up. Your wicked ways, you have to give those but things But I like up. to say, you might not be where you want to be, but you're not where you well, used, used to be. Used to be, yeah. yeah. So, but I accept that to a certain degree because I hate when people say, oh, you can't never be all the way right. I don't know. I challenge that because when I opened up the book, you know, I love to read the spirits. Mm -hmm. I love to read the Bible. 
So Jesus say great things that I have done, but what? Even greater, greater things, things you, you should, should do. do. So we got to ask ourselves, well, how come I ain't done nothing greater than Jesus? Mm -hmm. Because we take it that Jesus paid for our sins and Jesus is the ultimate and all that. Mm -hmm. And we don't even test our godly powers. Mm -hmm. We don't test that. We don't believe we got no power because we done covered them up with so much filth. And right now is a serious time, not just for black people in the world, for every person in the world, because we have adapted to so much of the world's filth to be like proverbial swine. We have our heads so far down in the slop trap to a storm is brewing that's gonna wipe us out, but we refuse to look up from the slop because we're in love with it now. Oh, we just eating up everything that's filthy. We don't wanna hear about nothing that's good. The more runchy and dirty it is, the more we love to laugh. Yeah, so now we're like, proverbial swine with our heads so far down in the slop, just eating up all the dirt. The storm is brewing and it's gonna take us out and nobody haven't raised their head up yet to realize it. That's where we are as a people. So I tell people all the time, I'm like, hey, if we don't wake up, like people, oh, I think, I think the end coming. No, 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 no. The end of yours is coming. Yeah. The end of yours is coming because we've ordained a Satan-like lifestyle. We love being devilish. And if we don't stop ourselves from doing what we're doing right now, we will destroy ourselves. I, mean, I don't know. I was with some people yesterday, brother. I don't know if it's Bishop Ford or Pastor Ken Honoré. One of them made this comment. Say, it don't matter anymore whether it's Democratic Party, Republican Party, Independent Party. The party is over with. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the party is over. Period. Yeah, the party is over. It is time for everybody to come together. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. You process. have to work through this process. That's yeah. right. I mean, we have had an extension. We've had an extension of time where um, where it's very serious right now, and we have to um, we have to we have to come together to come out of this alive else we're gonna find ourselves in a very, um, a very, very dark place. And we already as dark as we could get right now. So the next step is death. Like you say, it's not the world is coming to the end. Mm, it's your the world. People, your, people, world. world is your time is coming to the end because yeah. we are consumed with so much filth, garbage. Everything is acceptable now. Everything. There's no more limits. That, Matter of fact, Master P had that right. Huh? No limits. Huh? Ain't no limit to what we'll do now. Um, I was talking, and they got very beautiful, um, what I call pretty devils out there right now. So they got people in the entertainment field, young ladies walking around that's not being a role model for your kid, not the proper role model. So they got all their clothes off. And I was at the University of Chicago recently, and I was talking about this. And I say, me being an old country boy, I say, I can remember coming up when my grandmother, my grandmother used to call her underclothes, step-ins. Okay. Boy, don't go in that bathroom. I got my step-ins in there. She had them hanging up, drying over the heater. You go in there, you got popped upside the head. Or you might catch a whooping. So they had a sense of shame about themselves when it came down to that in those days. Now, these women are not even wearing step-ins, underclothes, drawers, or nothing. 
and walking around with dresses on that you could see straight through. And I say, me, being an old country boy, all my life I love raising dogs. I used to raise pit bulls for a living. And when my girl dog came in heat, she would take her tail and cover her noodle parts. She had shame. Now we got our noodle parts hanging out. We show our noodle parts, so we'll leave nothing up to the man's imagination. And when you talk about having a covered woman, they think that you crazy. And a brother out there, he can't get it together. How in the hell can you get it together when everything is pertaining to sex and drugs now? You cut on the radio, it's all sex and drugs. So we have a world that has taken us so far down a dark path to it's almost impossible for us to stop the destruction that's coming. You know, it's like with all of community violence, right, that's going on. I mean, we hear about it, read about it. The, the killing, well, they call it black-on-black crime, but it's white-on-white crime, too. But most things that happen in other people's community is happen through them. Same, same. Yeah, so no matter what community you're in. But there is a, a, so much violence, so much theft. What can be done? See, well, we promote a deaf culture every day. Every day. From the music. All the way down, we promote yeah. a deaf culture. Now, what's happening is, um, I was riding the other night. I cut the radio on, and I heard this country, western-sounding guy. He said, remember to come to Motel 6. We leave the light on for you. I say, Wow. Why would they make a commercial like that? Because they want you to patronize Motel 6. Why? We leave the light on for you. That commercial will bring truckers and other individuals where? To Motel 6. Mm -hmm. Now, think about this. Motel 6 is a viable business that stays packed, right? Because they run what? Commercials. Now, what commercial do they run for Louisiana State Penitentiary. They don't run none. That's what people think. But every time you cut on a hip-hop station and it's talking about how many people you didn't kill, how much drugs you didn't sold, that's your commercial that's leading you from the elementary to penitentiary pipeline. Little kids listening to it. I see little kids. I didn't murk one and two and three. Oh, now he got the murder spirit in him. So the music is commercially influencing this generation of individuals to go to penitentiary. Okay, now, now they, they got a law. They're working on a law in Congress that going to deal with this rap music. It's, a, it's causing problems. It's causing death and destruction. Now, do that need to be in the law? Would you put that in the law? Because you got to remember, we also... It has to be in your morals. Yeah, in your morals. The hell with the law. Yeah, because... It has to be in your morals. Well, I, I don't even listen to it anymore because I can't afford to get that in my spirit. You see what I'm saying? And because we have never hardly had anything, we'll fight against that. Oh, my baby going to be a rapper. They trying to stop rap. Well, what is rap? If you take a C and put it in front of rap, what do you have? Crap. That's exactly what it has turned to. It's foolishness now. So either you want the best out of life or you continue to live down a treacherous lifestyle. Look what's happening to all our rappers. They're murdering each other up in the streets now. They're dying like the mob died. So, and soon you get a little name recognition. Soon you get a little rain recognition. 
and you got other individuals that sitting back looking at you bring your name up and how do they take that down? We gotta take him out. Cause that's what they've been conditioned to do. Oh, we gotta take him out. And they go do a couple of days in jail and now they the next big thing on. It's just crazy. It's crazy. But, but everything, like you say, from the, the news to the movies, the, the, you know. It's all geared toward death and destruction. Video games. And I'll tell anybody this. Anybody should know this. We are, if you show me another people, I'll put a dress on and walk down Plank Road for a week and pop my behind. Name another culture of people that suffers and get paid and profits off of their suffering. Nobody but us. That's our success. Make a song about your suffering. Make a song about how drug infested your community is. You don't catch that on the white stations. You don't catch that on nobody's stations but ours. We get paid to profit off of our suffering. And you came in the rap game where rap music was a cultural thing, where they rapping about the things they was going through, for as the and uh, for, it, it was, the justice that was doing being done. It, it, well, that was that was hip hop. Right. There's a difference in hip hop and rap. Okay. Yeah, yeah right. that was hip hop. Hip hop was a form of edutainment. That mean it was like reporting the news and the ills of what was taking place in the ghetto. Then gangster rap came and started glorifying all of those things that was happening. So, it was, hey, Mr. Dope Man, I think you sick. You sold crack to my sister and now she's sick. So it was glorifying all of that. So we started to glorify the type of lifestyle and it created a generation of dumb devils. And those dumb devils had dumb devils who had dumb devils. And now there's just a whole world of dumb devils with one wise Satan that sits behind the desk and say, oh, yeah, I think I'll sign you. So you was one of the dumb devils that got this story. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, with the gangster rap thing, no doubt. Yeah, we pioneered a lot of the Southern style of music when it came down to that. But we were sick as well now. We were sick yeah, as well. Because you on PCP. Yeah. You already out of yeah, your Yeah, I'm already you, out of my mind. You done named your company for Mather High. Record. Yeah, so I was <laughs> so, already out of my mind, no doubt, man. So, but also, you think you got it going, y'all think y'all rolling, and y'all, you know, these people come sign you, they, they, you get on the road. What, what, tell me what happened you get on the road. You got all this dying. Well, you got, beauty, you got different the, things happen, and I think one of the biggest things is that it was popular, and I think it still is pretty uh, normal to get signed. And when you get signed, um, they sign you to um, 10%. You get a 10% deal. And you get that 10% deal, and when we went and signed our deal, they played a trick on us. Like, man, hey, bro, we ain't signing for no down 10%. They said, oh, man. I understand, I can give you 14, and that's the most that I could go. But well, we're signed for 15%. And we came back happy as hell. We signed for 15%. <laughs> and then when we started getting the royalty checks in, we're like, hey man, what the hell going on? They said, well, you signed for 15%, we're paying you your 15%. So then you gotta figure out, well, how much is 15% of a dollar? <laughs> And then you find out that 15% of a dollar is actually <laughs> one dime and a nickel. 
Say, God damn, they pulled the fast one. They get needed five yeah, yeah. They pulled the fast one. That's the industry. That's yeah. the industry. But also, you 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 wearing all your jewelry, the nice clothes. Oh, uh, yeah, on. yeah. But a lot of that, a lot of the flash and dash is actually just um, smoking mirrors. What you mean by smoking mirrors? Um, a lot of the things that you can get, um, they will say, okay, we're here. Uh, what do you want? I want a Rolex. You get the Rolex and you get this. And it's owned by the record company. But you're fronting it. But once you slow down a little bit, then if you can't just buy it outright, they just take it back and put it back in the drawer for the next one. So you you don't have you don't own nothing. Well, a lot of these new rappers they do because they go out there and they spend that money and get that stuff. But um, uh, back then and, and still kind of like now, you might rap about a mansion and then you just living in a nice flush partner's apartment. You know what I'm saying? So it's a it's a it's a it's a smoke and mirrors type of deal. Now, I remember another young rapper that you and I went spoke at a school once quite a few years ago, what? Oh, 16, yeah. 17 years, Kevin Gates. He had just got out, gotten out of jail. Mm-hmm. And he, we was going to, I think, I think Robert E. Lee High School. Robert E. Lee, yeah. Robert E. Lee High School. And to, to speak over there, and you brought, you brought him in because he had just gotten out of jail. And he didn't have all of the tattoos. He was a handsome young man. He was still yeah. a handsome young man, but he had all those tattoos. But you brought him in to come and speak to the children. He did a great job. But later on, he moved up in the game and still lives. Yeah, he still one of the, one of the top rappers. Now he changed his whole style, of, his whole being of who he really is. Yeah, to no fit doubt. into the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of them do. And I, I was, I am still. I won't say disappointed because um, that's his choice, right? But I did hear him. In an interview, he said that one of his children asked him, Daddy, why you wear your pants sagging like that? And he said, I had to tell him I wear my pants sagging like this because I got a graveyard up under my belt. I'm like, please stop. Like, you have to draw the line somewhere. In fact, he should be one that have his pants around his neck because you ain't never killed the damn thing. But we send these images and these messages out to others being something that we're not. And nobody facts check. Nobody facts check. And I tell people all the time, um, dealing with the situation with Kevin Gates, a lot of people know my influence on his success story, right? So you got Dead Game Records, right? Then you have BWA. Then you got APG. Then you got Warner Brothers. Then you got Atlantic. So you got five companies on his music, right? Five companies. Now, if you go buy a woman house and you see five people cars out there, what you gonna call them? That's your house. (laughs) If you got five cars parked on your record, you're a prostitute. So these guys don't know the industry like people think they do. So you got Dead Game Records getting a portion of it. You got our partners music group getting a part uh, portion of it. Warner Brothers getting a portion. Atlantic getting their cut. All of these different people are getting paid off of one entity. That's because you didn't know what you was doing. So uh, you got to know this business. This is a strewed business. This is a very strewed business. And very strewed. By the time the, the, the guys get into it, but if you ain't rapping about death, Destruction. You ain't getting into it. Oh, no, no, no. Shout out to D1. 
Oh, D1, yeah. I'll pop the D1. Your, Shout out to D1. Man, man, D1. That's, a, that's D1. one of my real. D1, what, what that was, a Sally May? Yeah, Sally May. I paid Sally D1, May you back. Did your thing. Yeah, LSU alumni, D1, man. Um, they have some, some rappers out there that are spitting some knowledge, but it's overshadowed well, by the I, garbage. I got my, my, my church member, Carlos uh, Vaughn, who's doing some uh, Ain't No Gangster Rap. Is uh, what do you call that? Uh, gospel rap. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're doing some, you got people doing some positive things. Yeah, man. I mean, they got some positive stuff out there, but right now we're just caught up into all the trash. So it's just like, wow, because you know. When you're sitting there hungry, and that's what the system now. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you want to eat now. You want to eat, and that's how they, that's how they string you along. And a lot of these cats, a lot of them, they'll get money on top of the table and up under the table. And once you see that, there's no morals in it. There's no morals in the game anymore. It just sucks. Let, let me tell you, we talking about morals. I, I'm gonna have to vouch for you on, on that statement. Uh, I first met you. Not, I don't think I first met you, but one of the times my first encounter in a way that was that kind of understood the projector where you trajectory of where you was going at the restaurant, mm -hmm. Buffalo Wings Express, and, and you and your boys was a regular. Customers. With a big boy. What do we have about? Oh, Butter Red. Butter <laughs> It was come through there. So one day I'm sitting there. I'm standing uh, at the counter. And I see him and the boy. They're sitting by the window at one of the table. And I see some, some uh, everybody reaching under, under the table, right? I see everybody under the table. Mm -hmm. I see some activities going on. I say, oh, man, not up in here. Yeah, now yeah, we, yeah. Now yeah, we yeah. talking about the, what that was? The, probably mid to late 80s, right? Late yeah, 80s, yeah. Late 80s, yeah. And uh, so after, you know, after they got through, this restaurant cleared out a little bit. I eased on over them. Because first of all, you know, they were like little boys to me. Yeah, yeah, they were yeah. Like little boys. Like so, kids, yeah. Yeah, so I eased on over there. And I told them, I said, hey, man, I said, uh, bro, you know, I enjoy y'all coming. I, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate y'all support me. But you can't come in here doing this kind of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, no problem, though. They, they showed me some love, showed me some respect, and they... They went on. I, did, I didn't see it again. That didn't mean they didn't do it, but they didn't come through there with that. Mm -hmm. But there was another experience, probably a year later. Mm -hmm. A year later, we sitting, in, we sitting at the restaurant, once again, sitting at the restaurant, and we hear some boom, 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 shots going on, right? So everybody's looking around. When you hear shots, you don't know where shots coming from. Yeah. yeah. You, you, when you're sitting in somewhere, you don't know where to look, what direction. It was my first time really hearing shots. In South Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. So when we look, nobody could figure out what was going on. So finally, we look across the street. We see a we see one car hurry pull out real quick. Mm -hmm. Then we see a, then a few not long later, a few then seconds later, we see another car pull out go about their business. So then the word got to us. Uh, man, that was Silky. Man, Silky got shot. Silky got shot. So the next day he showed up at the restaurant. You remember mm -hmm, this stuff? Mm -hmm, the next day he showed up at the restaurant because the police came by to talk to us, ask us if we see anything. Mm -hmm. We didn't see nothing. We just heard something. Mm -hmm. And they started telling us they heard that Silky Slim got shot. You know, see what's going on. Tell them to come talk to us, and you know we gonna you know correct the situation. Mm -hmm. So when Silk walked in the restaurant, I said, "Man, hey, that was you yesterday? Got shot over there." I said, bro, look, man, the people came by here. They told me to let you know, man, they, you know, come on in, bro, talk to them. No problem. They're going to you know, get it resolved and find out what happened. 
Silk said, nah, man, nah. Yeah, Catholic? He said, bro, no, bro. He said, he caught me slipping. Yeah. Caught you slipping. Yeah, <laughs> what do you mean, caught, caught you slipping? slipping? That's right. I was, sitting, I, was sitting at this, I was sitting there in my car counting money. Yeah, caught me slipping. And the guy, they saw him count the money, and they walked up to the car, started shooting. No question asked. Yeah, no question asked, yeah. And, and you, you got hit? Yeah, I got hit twice, yeah. You got mm-hmm. hit twice, yeah. but not nothing. Nothing detrimental, yeah, but, uh, but yeah. But this is what you told me. I said, Silk, bro, okay, I understand, man. But you need to go report that to the police, bro. I got to respect the game. So I got to respect the game. Yeah. I said, <laughs> from that day forward, I was telling everybody, them politicians, <laughs> them preachers, <laughs> I said the gangster got more respect for each other. Yeah, I got to respect the gun. Yeah, because I want them to respect it when I'm the one that's behind the gun. So I, I, I never ever, nobody could say I ever put them in jail for shooting me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> be, yeah, I mean never. I mean because I respect the game. I mean the game mm. is the game. And people know they got individual. Right now, you know, I have these awkward moments, and I'm talking to somebody that's really out there. He knows who he is. He brought his son up to me. He said, Silk is little. Man, tell my son you shot me. I said, hell no, man. What are you talking about? His son said, I know you ain't shot him. I said, yeah, man. I said, your son, your daddy always wanted to be a gangster. I ain't never shot him. <laughs> I don't like talking about that kind of stuff. You know he what wanted, I'm saying? He wanted you to tell yeah, son you shot man, him. Man, you did shoot me, man. Look right here. I said, man, I ain't shot you. I don't know how. Yeah, you been shot. But I ain't doing it. <laughs> you know? Um, but I never want, I never want, because... The, the man brought his son up to you to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then his yeah, son yeah. want to kill you one day. Yeah, that's what I always say. I never wanted, I want to take glory and say, yeah, I shot your daddy. And then his daddy go off laughing about it. And then his son at home in the bed laying back. Oh, that's who shot you, huh? I see how you be hurting every morning, daddy. And he come kill me. No, I never shot your dad. <laughs> But uh, man, it's just it's just awkward situations, bro. But I always respected the game. I, I, you know, truth of the matter is this: that if God wouldn't have called me the way that He done, I was willing to die in the streets because I loved the streets. I loved the manipulation. I loved the game. I loved doing what I was doing. Like I did. I, I, I wasn't one of those persons that was like off into it, you know, where I didn't like it. I loved it. But you still was a crash dummy. But you was, you oh, was, yeah, most definitely. But, but, but you, you was the, the, top, the top crash dummy. Yeah, I loved the streets. I loved it. I loved it that moment of my life. Um, but God changed that. You know, and I accept the changes. But I was willing to die. I mean, and, and I tell people, you know, a lot of people always ask me, you know, hey, man, what took you preachers? <laughs> preachers will say, man, what took you so long to come to the Lord? I say, you don't know? He say, no. I say, it's hard to look for God when people treat you like you are a God. So I had so many people treating me like I was a God because of what I could do for them. So I didn't have an interest in trying to find God. God plucked me up out of the madness. He pulled me up out the mud. He changed me. So um, I owed him for that because I was ignorant enough to die in the streets because I was, I knew, I always knew, regardless to where I was at, I knew I was in hell now. Hey, boy, this hell. Got to keep that gun on me. 
I got to make sure my car full of gas in case I get into a shootout. I can make it away. I, I knew, I, and recently at my homeboy funeral, I say, we always had a rule in the game that always keep your car on full in case you got to run from the laws or you got to run from some niggas. <laughs> so keep your car on full. No matter which one, I mean. Yeah. So, but look, I realize now that it wasn't the gas that saved me. It was grace. It was God's grace that saved me. So um, I tell people, like, once God did the change, I accepted it. And I would never, ever try to go back to the streets, never. Now, you know, you're talking about, you know, the game and being in that game for so many years and stepping out of the game. When you made up your mind to do that, knowing you got to go through uh, you got to go through persecution for real. The guy that that that's in you, mm-hmm. those people that you know, they, they see you. Well, hold on, he done punked out on us for real. Oh, I mean, hey. So, so the, the the gangsters, you. That's that's a that's a. Uh, so how, how how you make that? How you separate yourself from that? I don't think I separate myself from it. I think that people know what I was. I was um I was in South Baton Rouge and one of my very close associates, he was looking booted up like we say. I threw my car in reverse and went back and hollered at him. So he said, man, what's wrong with you? He said, what's wrong with me? He said, what the F is wrong with you? Say, I'm out here doing what you taught me to do. I'm holding down the block. You running around like a fucking police or something. He say, you taught me this. Mm-hmm. And that hurted me. That was real talk. Yeah. It was real talk. But I kept going. I couldn't let that pull me away from the path, right? Another time. I went back to one of my homeboys. I say, wow, dig him. Say, bro, let me holler at you. He said, what's up, son? I say, man, do you know how good the Lord is, man? I say, the Lord has done so many things for me. He's helped me in this. He's helped me in that. And he looked at me. He said, man, Slim, bro, you messing me up. I say, what you mean? He said, man, you told me we was rocking with the devil. Now you coming back talking about God. I'm staying where you taught me at. I said, I was out of my mind. And an old man once told me something when I was real young. I used to sit on the porch. He said, come here, boy. I said, what's up, Mr. Dave? He said, go down there and get me a 50-cent piece of day's work chewing tobacco and a Coke. I went and got it, came back. He put that chewing tobacco in his mouth. He said, let me tell you something. He said, I always remember this. He said, it's more easier to make a fool out of somebody than to convince them they've been made a fool out of. He say, why is that? I'm young, I say, I don't know. Because once they find out they've been made a fool out of, it hurts. Don't no man want to be hurt. So he'd rather go through life being a fool. Don't ever go through life being a fool, son. God, He say, accept it. If you've been made a fool out of, accept it and do better. And I think that was some of the morals and some of the brick and mortal that helped me to be who I am, you know, that helped me to understand, yeah, I was made a fool out of, but 
I haven't gave up. So never give up. People give up too easily, I would say. But you, you still in you, I'm, and I've been knowing for quite some time, but in the last 10 years, you're still in your mid-50s. You've lost a lot of friends. I mean. I lost four in the past week. In the past week? Yes, sir. I lost four in the past week. It's like, man, how you lose so many friends in the span of, okay, I'm talking about years. You're talking about in weeks now. Yeah. So, but I, I know you done lost a whole lot of friends. I think the death is attached. I don't know. Like, it's not normal because it ain't happening to you and it ain't happening to him. It's not happening to them. You know, but for me, it's attached some kind of way. Um, Wall Street Journal did an article on me called More T-Shirts Than Friends because I always used to wear the T-shirts with the dead pictures on it. And when I was pulling out all these T-shirts for the Wall Street Journal, I was kind of proud that I had kept up with all my friends' T-shirts. And it was kind of like in a bragging state. And that voice dealt with me. Say, yeah, 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 show off your shirts. But make sure you tell them it's an embodied soul. Tell them it's a friend that you'll never see again. Let them know that that was somebody's child as well. And that's what Stop the Killing was bred out of. That these are people that I can't bring back. And one of the coldest stories that I ever have to tell is that my mother's brother's child, my mama baby brother child, he was in the gang, I was in the gang. Got two rival gangs here, right? On opposite sides. Yeah, but we grandma's kids now. We, grandma beat out behind. We pee in the bed with each other. And um, my gang ended up killing my cousin. And I always looked at my gang as my family. And I looked at my cousin at the time as the enemy. And now that I'm awake and I have to deal with the saga of his kids asking how did we let that happen, that's a cross that I have to pick up and carry every day. Like I have to pick that cross up and carry every day. And what has happened with us is that Medea, Aunt Maggie, all of those people are dead, right? So what has happened is that my uncles and their cousins and all of our family, we don't even know each other anymore. So I got sons that's getting into it with cousins. And my mom and your cousin, your mom ain't my cousin. Ain't you kin to the causes? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a cousin. So now our family is so disconnected to it, it can happen again. History could repeat itself. But when I pick that cross up every morning, that's the crutch that I know I will never go back to the streets because never growing up as a child did I think something like that was capable of happening. But it happened. And we can't undo it. So once you plant that seed, it's done. It got to run its course. Got to run its course. So when his little boy sit down, man, tell me what my daddy was like. And he tell him about his daddy was like. And then it comes down to the big question. Well, how that happen? Like, hey, son, this is a wicked world. Like they say, it's a dirty world, but it's still spinning, you know? So I deal with that, man. I have to deal with that. And 
it's a it's a thing, LD, where I enjoy heaven and hell right here on earth. As long as I'm trying to help and make the world a better place, it's peaceful for me. But when I find myself being lazy and just laying down on it, then I'll be in hell because I wake up with all of those thoughts in my head. Damn, my cousin did. I wake up with all of that. And I've seen so much death until I've had a in my life where mentally I shut down. I had, I wouldn't say a breakdown because I wasn't broke, but I was closed out, right? When I say that, I house got destroyed, just walking over trash, and just everything was shut down in my life, right? And I felt like the end, and I was fighting suicide daily, right? And what I had to do to escape that moment was rely on the only thing I knew to rely on. That was my faith. I had to pray like hell. I had to. Pray. I just wanted out. I just wanted out. And it wasn't that I wasn't happy. It was just dealing with all of the baggage that come along with being who I am. All of the baggage. And to do your best at changing and then still have individuals be like, oh no, we can't work with Silky Slim. We can't, no, he, he can't come here anymore. Why? Because of what I used to do. And, and that's what I find so hypocritical about the world is that sometimes we refuse to forgive individuals for things that they have done in their life. If I've taken someone's life, um, I would like to be forgiven, but I wouldn't go to the parent and say, forgive me for what I've done. I ask God for forgiveness, and I live with that, right? But small things where people won't forgive you and let you move forward in life often challenge you, and then you may find yourself in a situation where you want to go back to being the type of person that you used to be. That's a wrestle for me. You know what I'm saying? That's a wrestle for me. I'd be like, hey. And, and that's why I don't like talking religion. I don't like getting off into the religion thing with pastors or nobody else because, hey, don't come try to tell me, well, what do you do, Silky? Oh, man, right now I find peace in Islam. Well, you know, if you don't have Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell. Hey, nigga, when I was in hell, you ain't come tell me a damn thing. When I was in hell, you were scared to come talk to me. You were talking about I was the devil then. If I had the devil in me, why you didn't come try to get him out of me? But now that I'm this calm person that they say, I can't believe you used to be that way. Now you can talk to me about religion. I'm like, man, I ain't got time to religion gang bang with nobody. Wherever I find peace, if you find it in Christ, hey, I love Christ as well. So you find yourself in a bigger quandrum where you in your mind and you know you're doing your best. My best, but get rejected because of the past. And particularly when you know you can be of assistance. Yeah, I get rejected. I get rejected. And it, 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 it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's like we talk about forgiveness, but we're not willing to forgive. I'll take a perfect example. Um, 
things happen here in Baton Rouge. And some things were said that many people felt shouldn't have been said, right? And I'll never be forgiven for that. But what happened and one thing that I realized is that I was at the table recently talking to officials about help fighting the violence, right? And official made me understand where I stood at in Baton Rouge. So I say, man, I say, if you look, I say, the thing that y'all won't forgive me for, when I said something about this person that came to Baton Rouge and did this horrible act, y'all won't even forgive me for that. You know what they said? Oh, you've been forgiven for that. I said, well, how come I can't work in Baton Rouge? They said, because you're the only black person that ever had nerves enough and balls enough to come on TV live and say you came to piss on the Confederates and this is the Confederate state. So you can't look for the Confederates to do nothing for you. I said, hey, I said, thank you for helping me understand. That's all I can say. You thought it's one thing and it's another. It's a whole nother. He said, you had the balls and nuts enough to say God sent you here to piss on the Confederacy. And this is a Confederate state. So I say, hey, the, the grandchildren, the children of the Confederates, they will never forgive me. So you know what I still say? To hell with your Confederacy. I still say that. Yeah. I stand on that. I may have been sorry for what I said about the other situation, but the Confederates can go to hell in my life. So I don't ask them for help. I, don't, I understand now. It was like I was across the river one time and I was dealing over there with the schools system over there and I went into this office with the uh, superintendent across the river in Plaquemine and I was sitting there and I was telling him about uh, how we could um, make change in the school system and he gave me a look. And when I seen the look that he had, you know what the look told me at the time? I looked at him and he looked at me and you know what I read in his mind? He said, this Negro, and I know he didn't say Negro. He used the other word. He said, he's not as smart as they say he is. Because here he is begging me to help him take his people out the condition that we put them in. Oh. I understood. You know what I said? I said, I said excuse me. I said, I'm so sorry, um, whatever his name was. I said, I'm sorry, superintendent such and such. I say, I don't want to waste your time or mine. He said, oh, no, you're not wasting mine. I say, well, I don't want to waste mine. Because I know I ain't finna get nowhere with you. And think about it. That's where we are. We take so much time. Just think about this. Um, Javante Davis, young fighter out of Baltimore. Real good. I can't go to Javante Davis right now and say, hey, bro, look. Train me to beat you, please. What Javante Davis gonna say, man, this nigga go crazy. That's the way it is with us keep going, get educated by our former enemy, asking them to train us to beat their children. They saying, boy, they haven't learned yet. And we haven't come smart enough to even open up our own places of education yet. So we got Negroes walking around with big churches with no schools in them. Negroes, oh yeah, we got a big 35 member church. Well, where's your school at? 
not your daycare, where's your school? You go to the synagogue of the Jews, they got a shula there where they teaching their children about their history and what they want them to learn, right? You can't go to any person from Romania and ask them about the suffering they went through in the Ottoman Empire because they know we're the only people that refuse to teach our kids about our history, our suffering, and come up with our own educational system. But we see us down there, oh, they trying to close our schools down. How in the hell can somebody close your school down if it's yours? Because it ain't yours. It's theirs. So they do what they want with theirs, man. So we have to start to put our kids into our own form of education, of knowledge. If we don't, we're going to continue to lose. The heavyweight champion of the world ain't going to train you to be him, bottom line. So you, you don't, don't expect you a slave, master. They'll train you to beat them. It ain't going to happen. It just ain't going to happen. You look like a fool going to the heavyweight champion. Train me to beat you. No, I like being the champion. Matter of fact, I'm going to put my feet on you some more. Well, you won't even think about being the champion no more. That's what we are, man. But we just, uh, we just don't get it. And even, you know, I look at people. I have friends and I had a... Young lady, she used to always like to brag about how many degrees you got. I'm a three-time master degree. Say, well, you ain't mastering a damn thing. You land up with a seventh grade dropout. <laughs> <laughs> so what is you mastering? <laughs> what is you mastering? See? Yeah, well, I, I went to LSU and got my BS. That's exactly what they gave you, a bunch of BS. <laughs> so we have to... We have to, I'm not saying anything's wrong with being educated, but I'm saying have a higher learning of education on top of what they then gave you. That's this, it. This is coming from a man with a seventh grade education. Seventh grade education. Matter of fact, I was looking at the movie Life, Eddie mm -hmm. Murphy, and uh, what's his name? Martin, Martin Lawrence. Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And I remember the story you told me when uh, they, they had a letter. Yeah. And uh, they asked about it. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, where's your, your letter at? Gave it to the white man. Well, uh, uh, where's your letter at that said you could be out here? Well, here it is, here, boss. It said that I could go right down there to the Joneses and such and such and such. The white man looked at the letter. That's exactly what it said. Go ahead on down there to the Joneses. They, that fool can't read either. <laughs> <laughs> But you was all, you was in prison. Y'all, you all get a letter. Nobody can read the letter. Nobody can read the letter. I mean, I mean, uh, so you give me an idea on if there's twenty people in the room and something you got a letter. Tell me. But you got, you're always going to have one or two that's real, been there a long time that could really, really get out. And in, in many cases, where you say, "Hey, bro, look, come here." Yeah, what's happening? Get two packs of cigarettes. Wipe my wife a letter. That go on for about three or four months. See about the fifth or sixth month. The wife coming up there seeing the one who wrote the letter. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you're yeah. writing. Yeah, yeah, no. She know you ain't writing this. So she done fell in love with the person that's pinning all this stuff, man. And well, I how, think, did, how did you learn? Uh, Ulysses you, Long. You, Ulysses Long. You, Ulysses Long. Okay, that, that's the brother who served a lot of time. Yeah. In Angola. Yeah. So Ulysses Long in the cell. Watch me jump out the bed. Here and there. He had converted over to Islam then. One day I uh, say, hey, 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 you read the you read the paper? I said, yeah, I read it. What was in there? I said, I don't know, somebody got shot. Where at? 
I see the police car. Say, <laughs> uh, where at? I said, that's on the paper right there. So he said, hey, man, he said, let me tell you this. He said, man, you go in there and you watch Rap City and BET and all that stuff every day, play dominoes and spades. He said, you're going to be in prison for the rest of your damn life. You know? He said, man, you got to get an education, bro. And he taught me how to read. And late at night, you know, you take toilet paper and raw, raw crown grease and put on that toilet paper and take a box of matches and light it and use that as a wick when they cut all the lights off, right? So um, he taught me how to read. Now, I can read, but I read you under the ground. You already oh, you, know you, that. You, you read that? <laughs> but, um, yeah, but he taught me how to read. Now, I, I was thankful for that. Now, of course, you know, I'm, I'm down. I'm, I was in hunts at the time. Uh, I started reading. I started doing this. So I started reading about slavery. And, and, and uh, I read about um, the miseducation of the Negro. I started reading about slavery. So I was in the field one day, and I was trying to not work. So I was hiding behind the tree and looking. <laughs> and then I felt something cold on the back of my head. And when I turned around, white man up on the horse, read! I catch you not working again, I'll put a hole in you in the state and raise my goddamn pay. I said, yes, sir. I heard him start picking fast. And then when I looked up off the ground and looked up at him on the horse, he had a white towel with his blue hat on it, and he looked like somebody out of Roots. And I looked up and I say, God damn. I was heartbroken, bro. I say, I'm a goddamn slave. I say, I'm a slave. And I start telling my friends, I say, man, we slaves, we slaves, bro, we slaves. You know what they say? White folks done broke that nigga talking about we slaves. <laughs> man, we <laughs> making three cents a day. Like who to get there, brother? We three. making three cents a day, man. If this ain't slavery, what is? They start going around the compound. They even come back, uh, I'm calling home. My mama, baby, you all right? They say you done lost your mind. <laughs> no, mama, I found it. <laughs> I'm in slavery. Now, the thing is, the white man that's there, Sergeant Thomas, never forget him. Every day he came to work, he would look for me. What read that? They said, we ain't seen him. Tell Reed, if he ain't figured it out, he can't go nowhere, and I ain't got nowhere to go. I'll find him. Worked the hell out of me. Every time he came to work, and looked for me. One day I was standing on the walk. I had on some brand new Converse, starched down jeans. I said, Reed, you look like you need something to do. It's pouring down rain. I said, no, I'm waiting on a visit. I tell you what, Reed, I got something for you to do till your visit get here. I said, man, I'm going on a visit. Reed, come on, because if you don't, it's called disobeying a direct order. That's 90 days back there in the hole. You don't want to go in the hole, do you, Reed? I say, man, he got his cowboy boots on, marching through the mud. I'm trying to stay on the walk while I don't dirty up my tennis. Read this way. I say, no, I got on my brand new tennis. Disobeying the direct artery, insubordination. Boy, you got about 90, 120 days back there now. I'm walking through the mud, tiptoeing with my brand new Converse on, bruh. Took me over there and made me crush cans and crush cans and crush cans, and then my visit came. Every day he would find something for me to do that really, really agitated my spirit. I used to hate to see him coming. 
I'm going home. I'm mopping the flow. He said, Reed, what you going to do when you go out there? I said, you ain't going to know me when I'm out there. Reed, I know you anywhere. I said, I'm going to have that mask on. Come on, Reed, you going to the hole today. Took me to the hole. Now, I was going home at 12 o'clock tonight. Took me to the hole. I got in the hole. Hey, buddy. Hey, say, Slim, you want a cigarette? Yeah, man, give me a camera. I got a camera lit up. I say, man, I ain't think about that cracker, man. I go home at 12 o'clock tonight. Kick my feet up. It was at 7 o'clock. I kicked my feet up. See, around about 9 o'clock, my cell door open. They said, man, they let you go early. I looked out there. They had all kind of white folks at the end of the hall. I said, hey. I said, what's going on? They said, this emergency call. Come on out of there, Reed. I said, what? Yeah, you made a threat to security and we have the right to protect our employees and we do so. We're going to take six months good time to let you think about that and you won't be going home at 12 o'clock tonight. I was sick as a dog. I said, Lord, he's putting me in a trap. So I ended up losing six months good time. I didn't go home at 12 o'clock that night, but I was going home soon anyway. So I ended up staying another... 90 days and he was the one that walked me to the gate and he stuck the key in the gate when I was getting ready to go home and he stopped and he said Reed he said man I'm gonna miss you I said yeah Sergeant Thomas you're right because I won't be back he said Reed you've been here half your life this all you know I'll be here when you get back I said oh no Sergeant Thomas I promise I ain't coming back I'll see you when you get back Reed when I went back you know who I was with Dale Brown we were speaking and he was sitting there with his old raggedy hat on, he old and wrinkled up. I said, I owe this man an apology. I told Sergeant Thomas, I'll never come back here. I said, I'm back tonight. I said, but I'm going back home, Sergeant Thomas. He took his hat off and said, so far, Reed, you've been proving me wrong. Just keep proving me wrong. Being like, hey, I still don't think all that's real what you're doing. You'll be back. Yeah, man. So it's all about how you build your character. Another thing that I talk about. Old man, he worked in the correction facility for years. And when I used to, same time when you're talking about when I got shot up, and this was the 80s. I get a new car or something, he'll come sit in my car. Boy, Sook Slim, I want to be like you when I grow up, boy. Work right down there, hunt. sit in my car and turn my music up loud. Let his little grandchildren come out there. Boy, I want to be like you when I grow up, Sook Slim, when I came to hunts. I was looking for her. I said, man, I wonder where, uh, where Sergeant Green at? I said, I'm going to get him to bring me a lighter. I wasn't going to ask him to bring nothing illegal because I knew he was a clean-cut man. He'd been there all my life. He on vacation. I said, oh, okay. I seen him when he came off vacation. He coming out the administration office. I said, Green! <laughs> What's up, huh? <laughs> Say, he was coming down there. <laughs> And he had a look on his face before he got to me. I said, man, what's wrong with you, Green? <laughs> it scared me. Man. So you think it's a game now. Sergeant Green hit me so hard. And he had two other correction officers with him. So when he hit me, I fell on the ground. I was trying to get back up. And they took them cowboy boots and stepped on my arms. And Sergeant Green sat in my stomach and put his hand around my throat, and my legs was kicking like this. And he said, no. While I was in there trying to get ready to go to work, 
You had people shooting up your mama house, bullets flying in my goddamn house, I almost killed my grandchild. What took your ass so long to come here? He was the terrorizer then. And when they beat my behind and I went in the hole and laid up in that cell, I was so as hell, I said, damn. But I thought about what it had must have been like for him to be in that house, bullets coming in there, he trying to go to work, and then he had to come outside and act like he liked it me. Silk Slim. He said, ain't no fun when the rabbit got the gun. Deal with me. <laughs> Made me a better person, though. <laughs> you couldn't get mad at him. I couldn't get mad at him. I understood, man. So I went through all of these different layers of my life, man. And all of those helped shape who I have tried to become. Everything helped. And, and also, we, we, we definitely got to talk about what you're doing now. Uh, because, uh, you know, your travel have brought you many, many places, your journey. Yeah. And you in a, what's, how you say, how you say everything seemed fair seeming, right? Fair seeming, that's <laughs> right, yeah, fair seeming. Uh, but you, yeah, you, yeah, you have an opportunity, you, opportunity now that you're working with one of the, the, the greatest civil rights attorneys that have in, been in our time since Thurgood Marshall. But uh, and he's a good man, a good brother who fighting for the justice of, of so many. Uh, Attorney Benjamin Crump. So what is it like? What you know? How how did you get there? What you doing with him? And how is that working out? I think it's God put me there. Um, as you know, me and Ben are like like brothers. For real. For real. Yeah, for real. For real. Yeah. Um, God put me there. I don't know how it is for other people, you know, told this story to somebody yesterday. We were working on the Malcolm X case a couple of days ago. We was at this plush hotel on Park Avenue. We was all the way at the top. We was overlooking New York, the Brooklyn Bridge. And I say, wow. And Ben said, yeah, sicky man, you know how he talk. He said, man, sicky man, they say it's lonely at the top, man, but it's beautiful up here, ain't it? I said, yeah, man. I say, I want to I be up here one day too, Ben. He said, man, what you talking about, man? You up here with me. We up here. Look at us. I'm like, yeah. But I always have. you like, you know, hey, man, I want to do me, you know. But God has a way of putting you in position where you will be right there. So um, my thing with the whole situation has been, well, hey, Lord, you know, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be able to do this. I want to fly like this. I want to do this. And then God put you in check. Say, okay, well, you don't, you don't have to look at, look at your bank account. No, you don't see a million dollars in there. But you got my credit card. So where is that the millionaire go that you don't go? Hmm. What is it that he eat that you don't eat? Where is it that he sleep that you don't sleep? So what are you complaining about? I've created a way for you to do every single thing that you want to do without a lot of headaches. So um, the experience with Ben is that I have had a chance to solidify myself in the American history books. So when you go back and you look at the George Floyd case, 
you look at Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor, you look at all of these cases and you start seeing, turning through the books of history, you're going to see somebody standing by his side, which is me. And I work diligently behind the scenes to make sure that these cases were properly put together and properly done so that we could come out victorious in some of these matters, you know? So it's a team thing with us. And um, I, like I say, God put me there. I didn't put, and, and I've always, you know me, I've always had this thing. I was telling my friend yesterday, I said, you know, I always, um, if I didn't know, I act like I knew. And I put myself in a position where I had to go start learning, you know. <laughs> so, Can't yeah. perpetrate the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, to, go, I had to start go learning and, and start being that person that um, could be dependent upon and at the same time make sure that this individual of this time is secure as well, you know. I, I take that very serious because we get so many death threats. You know, and Ben is, Ben don't even curse. You know, if he get mad, he's like, boy, that judge needs to go to double hockey sticks. That mean hell. <laughs> <laughs> Man, sicker, he gonna go to double hockey stick, watch. Now, he don't even curse, you know. But I try to make sure that he's making it home to his family. And I tell people, I was like, I will put my life on the line for Ben, but don't get that twisted either, because I also kill if I have to, because we have lost enough of our leaders to violence for nothing, and they would just kill us just to kill us. So I take that serious that we make it home at night. Don't want to hurt anybody, and we don't want to be hurt. Just leave us alone and let us do our thing. But it's a wonderful experience. Plus, Ben um, is like you in a lot of ways. What I mean by, you know, y'all have that similar uh, spirit, kinder spirit, where y'all love people. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I he watch, love people. He love I people watch, so much. I watch Ben. He's hey, tired. Man. He's you know, down. It, 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 and, and I take a picture. Yeah. I be that person that say, "Hey, listen. Hey, look. Hey, hey. We eating. We gotta go. And then we can't get one. No, you can't get no picture. We finna go." <laughs> And being to be, man, sicker, don't be so mean, man. Let these people, they just want a picture. Now, I took him to Alabama, Selma, Alabama, where we crossed the bridge at, right? And he kept doing that. I said, you know what? I said, I know what to do. I said, I'm going to leave him alone. I was gone about an hour after a while. You know what I heard? Man, sicker, where you at, man? I'm ready to go, man. These people. <laughs> I was a little warm behind now. Yeah, so I let him warm out, bro. But uh, he's good with that. He loves people. He loves. He believes in fighting for. Oh, he he's fighting for real. He believes in fighting for the cause, and um, the main thing that I like about him, and he always says, "I'm unapologetically black." We can see that, sir. Yeah, yeah, we can see that. That's right. I'm unapologetically black, meaning that I'm going to stand for black people anytime I see an injustice, regardless to how white America want to snatch it. You know, and some of these cases are very mental draining. Mm 
Rasheem Carter is 2023 Emmett Till on steroids. Tell us who is Rasheem Carter. Rasheem Carter is a 25-year-old in Taylorsville, Mississippi. Got into it with some people at his job. White men chased him in a truck. He's found decapitated and body parts spread across Mississippi. Um, just last week, they found more of his body parts in another area from where his original body parts were found. So we've asked the Department of Justice to look into the death of Rasheem Carter. But Rasheem Carter aches my spirit because I got a 25-year-old. And for them to do something like that where skulls are found, bones are found, no flesh on them, it's horrible. And it's not no 10-year situation. This happened in months. Yeah, this happened in months. This in is months, November. Like, since November to November, now. You're talking about you find a skull. You find yeah. a body part. Yeah, those, yeah, those yeah. Parts. So we, we was like, what did they use? Acid? Um, how did they get this like this? And um, that's a troubling case for us. Um, to, to know that in 2023. Yeah. That you got people out there willing to take some, take it to that level, to get to get rid of somebody. You know, it it's sad. What happens is a friend of ours brought a gun case the other day, and he said, "Boy, this is a big gun case." Guy said, "Yeah, I had a lot of guns in there too." He said, "What you sold them?" Hey, no, I took him out the case because I'm waiting on that civil war. And we ain't thinking about a civil war. That's the bad part. They're going to slaughter some of us just to slaughter us. Because we don't take things serious. We too busy partying, drinking. We too busy with the BS. And they think it's civil war every day. And the thing is that we... I'm not a problem to you. We have went on with our lives and we go along to get along. Hey, don't mess with us. We won't mess with you. They'll let their enemy, that's how ignorant they are. They'll let their enemy come from a foreign soil, open up a store in our community, make millions of dollars and send back to their country and fight a war against them off of their land and they started worrying about killing the black man when we ain't thinking about no war at all. Some of us are not. So, but the question got to be, well, who are we? Yeah. That someone is concerned about you. That's right, that's right. Because they know what you, they know exactly what you have deposited inside of you. And that's the original spirit of the creator. If you open up a book, and they say, well, hey, you open up a book, say, hey, I'm God. My people are slaves. They're going to always be treated bad. And I'm going to punish that slave master when I get him. But I'm going to let my people be punished because they are hard, stiff-necked people who won't listen to me. And they know they've been the one with the whip in their hand. <laughs> we need to get rid of this. <laughs> That's how it is. So you can take it or leave it alone. This there is laid out in print. It's laid out in print. Bro. In other words, that, that day is coming. Oh, the day is definitely coming. For a lot of things, though, I think that we have adapted to so many of the ways of the wicked 
until a lot of us are going to perish as well. So I think that we have to start what we were singing about when we were kids, that old-time religion, we got to get back to that. We got to get back to giving God his proper respect. And we have to look for the best in ourselves. I welcome the type of supremacy and hatred that white folks are brashing down on us since Donald Trump. Because I think the more of that they put on us, the more happier we're going to start being to see each other. Like when it was in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 40s, in the 50s. You'd be happy to see a black man. Hey, brother. Yeah, you'd be happy. Hey, brother. You know, but as long as they let you run around like animals and continue to call each other the N-word then and continue to inflict pain on yourself, we're losing at all ends. So... I tell people every day, and I made that statement once already, in order for black lives to matter to anybody, it has to matter to black people first. And black lives matter can't be a chant. It has to become a way of living. Can't be no hashtag. That means that if black lives matter, when we're in front of the White House, it got to matter at the smack house. So since black lives matter, I ain't finna say you know hell wrong. Since Black Lives Matter, I ain't finna sell you no crack. Since Black Lives Matter, I'm not gonna shoot you. Since Black Lives Matter, black woman, I'm not gonna abort this baby. I'm gonna have it. Because Black Lives Matter. And until it comes to that, then it's all a joke. And you take a look at it because we so quick to go uh, fight for Wade versus Roe because I, I wanna be able to have an abortion. A woman could do it, she won with her own body. They ain't changed that law to stop you from aborting those black babies. They want you to kill a black baby. They changed that law to stop that white woman from going and get an abortion. So while you walking around trying to have an abortion for a black baby, you look at them, they walking around with litters of children in the airport. I see them, they got one, two, three little children walking and two in the stroll. And I say, damn, what kind of pills is they taking? They think that they finna be annihilated from the earth. So they trying to repopulate themselves while you trying to destroy your own self. Foolish people we are. So what, what do we have to do? Uh, knowledge, we can only give knowledge. You know, we can give knowledge. Knowledge of, of what then? Self, and self who we are. We have to have self-knowledge of who we so are. So like the ancient people say, man know thyself. Man know thyself. We have to get back to that. And sometimes I find myself talking and I stop talking because I believe in the scripture. I can hear. I say, wait a minute. Let me stop storing these pearls to this swine. Because some of us just want to be. What we are. Some of us have adapted to that, and I'm cool with that. I never tried to assassinate the character of any individual. If you're fine where you are, fine with me. Just don't come over here and try to uproot what I'm trying to lay down over here. So we have to find like-minded people and start working with them and stop doing this when we go vote. What would you mean do this? Vote for somebody just because they black. Vote for those that have the mindset that you have because they got other people and other races. You know who I, I study? I study like 
the Asian folk. I study them. If you don't study them no further than from right here in Baton Rouge, how many Vietnamese or Chinese or Asian folks do you see sitting down there at the city council? Zero. Do they have an Asian community here in Baton Rouge? They done brought up all of Broadmoor. They sit over there. They got their own banking system, their own schooling system. So they don't have to be concerned about city politics because they have created their own inside of that. That's how smart they are. And then they smart enough to go get a little filthy kitchen in your community and fry chicken and cook red beans and sell it to you and pull that money right back to their community. That's how smart they are. And don't worry about the politics because they ain't living under that. And that's how we have to get. We got to start financing and rolling our own dollars through this community. They're not living under the, the rules and laws of the wicked Roman government? No, no. They got their own thing going on. It ain't nobody bothered because they ain't got to go to them for money. They got their own banks. They got everything. Us, we look at it, and that's the thing. The thing about us is that we have not had any power all our lives. So when we get a little piece of power, like an elected official, we try to go down in the ground with it. I'm gonna be there until I die. And if you're not being effective, you don't even need to be there anymore. But we'll keep going and keep going until you die. That's how I started to come up. That's how I started to be the person that I am. I said, wait a minute, these damn fools taking the torch in the ground with them. I had to reach in the grave. Give me this goddamn torch. <laughs> Supposed to pass this. Pop <laughs> upside the head with it. We don't want to pass the torch. Because we always go off of titles and go off of uh, uh, all of these these things that think of that classism in the world, man. But, but we both had a friend that we, we know who fought for righteousness, justice, justice. For us, and that's our girl, Laura Burgess. Laura Burgess, yeah. Laura is uh, just one of the people. Yeah. You know, to this day, it hurt us that she, she transitioned. But she, wanted, she was a true warrior. Laura was a very good person. A lot of people, you know, be at odds. It's crazy that you said that because just two days ago, I was having this conversation in the hood. And it was like, I don't see, I don't see why they named that street Laura Burgess Boulevard. I don't see why they changed that to Laura Burgess. Uh, I said, well, who would you prefer to be named after? Laura Burgess or George Washington racist ass? Well, what George Washington? I say, President George Washington. What he got, I said, why you think it was called Washington Avenue? Why is that Buchanan and Tom? I say, all of those are president names. I say, so I'd rather for it to be named behind a black woman than Washington. She say, well, I ain't even know what ignorant kills us. No, no, no. The Bible said. I'll be prepared. Not because we raggedly poor and ain't got no money. We passed for the lack of knowledge. Of self. Of self. So I'm proud to have a street named after Laura. Yeah, because that was, was a, a matter of fact, uh, one of our last times out there when she ran for state representative, uh -huh. or city council, what it was. State rep, I think. And mm -hmm. uh, we, we went out there and stood with her 
but you know, she didn't win that one because of the system. Mm-hmm. People, some if you gonna do the right thing, like it's hard to get. Oh yeah, most definitely. You got it, man. You got to be. You got to be, um, especially in Baton Rouge. You know, you you sometimes you say, well. We finally got somebody that's not a handkerchief head. You just gotta go check their damn pocket sometime. Had <laughs> a handkerchief in their pocket. Now, 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 hold on, now. What, what we cannot do, I, I, I'll be less than a, 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 a brother of a friend that uh, that looked out for the both of us. Uh, hmm. So I cannot close because. You know, we got to, you know, because of him, we got a chance, you and I got a chance to work together for several months. And that working relationship built a longer lasting relationship that we develop a trust and a respect for one another. And that's our main college tip. Because oh. when I came home, first of all, t- tell everybody what count time. Simply know what count time is. Right? <laughs> I talked to Carlos, man. Actually, Carlos called me Sunday. Like, oh, okay. yeah, he called me Sunday. Hey, boy, you going to church? I said, not today, because I had a rough time last night. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, hey, pro, pro, pro is real, man. And a lot of people don't understand pro, but one thing I can say, and college will tell you, hey, man, hey, man, they, they call me what they want, man. And sometimes it's the ones that's in the house that could give you a loaf of bread. <laughs> or a slice of bread. Slice of bread. Yeah, whatever, you know, so... Um, and you know, a lot of people have different things to say about a college temple, but I always, I have to do them a lot of times when people say something about collars, I got to pull my white man card out on them. <laughs> I can't say that about collars because he's always been good to me. <laughs> he gave me a job. Now, the Negro gave me a job when I was about uh, 10 years old. It was working across the <laughs> child labor law should have got him. <laughs> and you know, pro, hey, I got many memories with pro working with him as a youth because pro was putting us to work as youth, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I'll never forget we was working in Plaquemine and back then you could go in the store and you could get 50 cent or 75 cent worth for lunch meat or pepper sausage. Hog cheese. Hog head cheese. So. <laughs> Of course, lunch meat is cheaper. That's right. And I say, I say, I say, Mr. Temple, Mr. Temple, I say, I don't, I don't like that lunch meat. I like pepper sausage. He say, you see them little black things in that pepper sausage, boy? I say, yes, sir. Make your teeth rotten. Look. <laughs> I say, I don't want no pepper sausage. <laughs> say, yeah, man, eating them little old black things. Look. <laughs> you didn't like pepper sausage. Yeah, yeah man. So. He's a joker, bro, but he's good people. He's good people, and I think that Collis has done a lot to advance Baton Rouge and LSU. He went through a lot at LSU, being who he was at the time, first black basketball player there. Um, he went through a lot, and he, he went through a hell of a thing, but he stuck through it to break down the barriers, you know? You have to respect and that. He's still breaking down barriers. Yeah, you have to respect that. He's still breaking down barriers. So um, he's given opportunity. And I mean, for me, I can't never say anything bad about him because he always have looked out for Silky. 
You know, and he look at me as a son, you know, and he's, he's, he's poured so much into me. It's a lot of things that I learned just by riding with him. Cause you know, that's one of the, if you really know college, you come up in that white truck, come on boy, let's take a ride. Take you on a ride and you learn a lot. So I've learned a lot from Carlos. And I, a lot of my swaviness and business tactics come from Carlos. The only thing that I haven't had the courage to do is go get a new truck and kick a dent in it so nobody will know it's a new truck. <laughs> That's it. Oh, get some but, new shoes. Yeah, get some, yeah, get some new shoes and scrape them on the concrete. Let's go for them up. So, uh, very good person, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah very when good. I came, when I got out of, uh, of uh, that Oakdale Federal Prison, you know, he gave me a job. Yes. You know, he gave me an opportunity. Yes. So I, I'm forever grateful and thankful. So for am him. I. So, uh, that's why you know I would not I'd be remiss to to have this conversation with you and not you know oh. the, the name of the, the name of the, the podcast is Count Time. Count Time, that's mm-hmm. right. And you know Count Time is anyone who who did any any time know what Count Time is. What did you what what did Count Time say? Count Time, that's where you get counted for you to. Find out how many inmates are there, how many convicts are where. Uh, I just, hey, when I look at count time, I think that um, it's knowledge that's being spreaded through this podcast. So I like it, uh, what you're doing. Um, the last, especially the last high-end ones that you've had with Attorney Crump, um, the guy who wrote the book about the Nation of Islam. And, of course, you know, I was kind of thrown back because... Dale Brown sent me a count time podcast. I said, boy, that was a great interview you did with Coach. He said, yeah, man, that was some years ago. <laughs> but Coach said that out like it was brand new. And, and that shows the longevity in what you do. It's, it's just as fresh today as it was back then. So um, great accomplishment that you have here. And never, um, you know, never give up. With, with this, I I looked at you unpack everything, and I looked at where you headed with this, and um, the thing is that I would say, if you're looking for mainstream to pick count time up, as soon as mainstream picks it up, that's when you lose. As long as it's going through those emails and it's coming through Facebook and it's coming through the underground, I think that this is the underground railroad of podcasts that gives it raw and uncut. And that's what we need today because everything is commercialized. And I think the sincerity of why you do the podcast to teach other individuals and to keep that drum beating in the jungle is important. Most people that do podcasts now, they want to become famous. You're only trying to spread knowledge to a dying people and a people with no knowledge at all. So I respect that more than anything. Oh, well, man, yeah. That's a heck of a way to put it, too. I appreciate that, man. Oh, it takes a lot to do that. I've been on that end. It takes a lot to do that. Yeah, real talk with Silky Slim. Yeah, man, it takes passion to do that, bro. It takes passion to do that in, in, in realness, you know. Um, in closing... I'll never forget, I was supposed to go speak at a church. The night before I went to speak at the church, my house got shot up. I remember that. 
Now, I woke up that Sunday morning after my house got shot up and I was putting on my suit and the phone rang. I said, hello? Hey, this pastor. I said, hey, pastor, I'm getting dressed. But listen, brother, I think that um, I heard about what happened. I think we're just going to have to do that another time. I was like, God damn. I was like, this is the time that you're supposed to bring me because what you're supposed to say, look how the Lord brought him out of there. His house got shot up 21 times and he made it out alive to be here today to give his testimony. Ain't God good? I say, well, Pastor, you don't think? He say, no, I know the stuff you believe in with the stop the violence and stuff. That's your passion, Silk. That ain't my passion, man. I don't want to put my church members in. And that's why we have the type of faith that we have because we weaken our faith. If God brought me through that, he going to damn sure protect me in the church house, huh? That's the type of faith that we have to have. So I tell people, man, and just on the, I had a very beautiful young lady that I was once involved with, but she always said ugly things, right? And when I would tell her about herself, she would say, I'm just being jocular. And I looked the word jocular up, means jokingly. So I'm going to just be jocular right now. It was Christmas time, and I was in Dillard's, and I ran across one of our television pastors. And I'm looking at him, and I boot him up and look at him crazy, just off spite, just messing with him. I was just messing with him. He said, hey, 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 young man, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here, young man. I said, who you talking to, me? Yeah, man, come here, come here. I said, what? He said, man, why are you looking at me like that? I said, looking at you like what? Say, man, you know how you're looking at me, man. Tell me why you're looking at me, please, man. I say, what do you mean? He say, and you know how you're looking at me. Please tell me why you're looking at me like that. I say, I'm looking at you like that because you told me money was coming and mines ain't came. He say, boy, your money coming. Hold on. Y'all hold on. Love y'all, man. Boy, your money coming. You hold on. Hey, y'all just keep holding on, man. Thank you for having me, no, bro. Thank you. We are our living legend here, my friend, my dear, my brother. The Real Talk with Arthur Silky Slim Reed. Thank you for being part of Count Time. Thank you for being here today. Hey, man, the pleasure was mine. And believe once that. again, for Real Talk, man. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time Podcast.